Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. I hope everyone is having a wonderful week so far. Today is news politics day as it typically is, and we will be talking a little bit about news and politics. We'll be talking about the Obama commencement speech and uh, the rhetoric that he used, what it represents uh, in our culture and the cultural wars that have been waging for uh, the past, at least the past decade or so in this country. But we will also be talking about Ravi Zachariah. He is the Christian apologist who went to be with the Lord yesterday morning. We will talk about the gospel that he preached for so long and what his ministry uh, represents. And then if I have time, I will answer a question that so many of you have asked me via Instagram. And that is what I think about MLMs or multi-level marketing. And I have a lot of thoughts on that. If I don't have time to get to that at the end of this episode, I will talk about it more thoroughly on a Friday. Uh, before we get started talking about that Obama speech, I do want to tell you guys about a sponsor that I love, that I've talked to you guys about before, and that is Objective Wellness. So as you guys know, it is probably more important than ever to make sure that we are staying healthy, that we've got strong immune systems. My husband and I, we are getting on the healthy eating track again. So we met, uh, now it's been like six years ago, I can't believe we've known each other that long, or maybe five years ago, I six years, no, five and a half years ago, that's when we met. And when we met, we met at a gym, and we loved working out together, and we loved uh, making healthy food together. And then over the past couple years or so, we've just kind of gotten a little bit lazy on the healthy food stuff. So we're getting back on track. We're trying to make sure that we are as healthy as possible. And if you are in the same boat, if you're trying to get as healthy as you possibly can, Objective Wellness is a company that can help you. So they make supplements that offer targeted solutions. So if you're looking for better sleep, if you're looking for firmer skin or a healthy immune system, whatever it is, they have products that are crafted with really high quality ingredients backed by science, endless hours of research that are shown to deliver specific results. Objective Wellness, they know, they understand that wellness isn't a one size fits all thing. So one supplement isn't going to work for everyone. And that is why they have those targeted solutions. That's why they focus on what you your needs are, what your goals are, and they try to target a supplement plan that is uh, right for you. Objective helps people feel their best and they can probably help you too. You can go to objectivewellness.com and if you use code Allie, you get 20% off your first order. And not only that, but if you're not completely satisfied, you can get a full refund. So there's really nothing to lose. Again, that is objectivewellness.com code Allie, A-L-L-I-E for 20% off off your first order. Just FYI, these statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. Any products that are discussed or advertised are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So make sure you go check them out, look for yourself, do your research, see if objective wellness could be right for you. That's objectivewellness.com. Okay, so let's talk just a little bit. I just wanna talk briefly about this Obama speech that he gave at a virtual event called Graduate Together. It was the high school uh, class of 2020 commencement. It was an event that was organized by uh, an organization called XQ Institute. It's a think tank and it was in partnership with LeBron James's foundation and the entertainment industry 
Foundation. So obviously we can guess by the fact that President Obama spoke at this virtual event that it was a left-leaning event or else maybe they would have asked the current president of the United States. LeBron James, we know his political views. He's pretty outspoken about that and his uh, opinions about President Trump. And so they chose President Obama, who is you'd probably say the original uh, celebrity president. Now, there were other presidents that have, you know, had friends in Hollywood. Certainly, Bill Clinton did, and maybe you could say that George Bush, George W. Bush kind of did too, but certainly Barack Obama has been fully embraced by the Hollywood powers that be. He has that star power more than any other president does. He is someone who is likable to the majority of the country, I would say. It might be a slim majority, but the majority of the country. And speaking as an objective person, so obviously you guys know, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, that I am ideologically and uh, politically completely opposite to Barack Obama. However, speaking as an objective person, just watching him, he is very easy to watch. He's very easy to listen to. You understand why people listen to him and feel comfortable. He is immediately relatable and likable and assuring. He is uh, a skilled politician. He is a compelling speaker, not in the way that he is dynamic and super, you know, loud or boisterous or something like that, but he kind of has that calm presence that I think people especially right now are looking for. And this is very smart, by the way, of him to be out in public like this. Uh, all the other presidents, most presidents before him have kind of just gone into the shadows after their presidency was up. They didn't speak up about the leadership and the mistakes that they were making. George W. Bush didn't really speak out about the mistakes that President Obama was making or the decisions that he was making that was contrary to maybe what George W. Bush thought that he should do. He kind of respectfully stepped to the side and said, you know what, I'm going to let this man govern. And I guarantee you that George W. Bush thought that there were things that President Obama did that were not wise and that he disagreed with. Of course, they're part of two political, different political parties, even though they probably do have uh, some ideological overlap. There were a lot of mistakes that President Obama made. There were a lot of decisions that he made that conservatives, that people who voted for George W. Bush did not like. And yet you didn't see George W. Bush coming out and, and giving these speeches that kind of in an underhanded way slammed President Obama. And that's what President Obama did here. He is not afraid to step out and to uh, make his political opinions known and even his opinions about the current administration in a way that seems subtle. And I think in a way that a lot of people even see as polite. So he made a comment in this speech about how the people in charge don't know what they're doing. I think it's pretty obvious to anyone with a brain that he is talking about President Trump and that you can't necessarily trust the people in charge, that you have to trust yourself. And so that was a part of his message. And President Obama is really good at this. It's He's really good at weaving the truth together with uh, leftist ideology. He is really good at making his political opinions sound non-political, uh, inserting a political statement into a conversation that has nothing to do with politics to make his statement seem not political. And this is very smart of him to put himself out there. And I started that thought a few minutes ago and then I forgot to finish it. But the reason why it's smart to put himself out there, 
both for him and just for the Democratic Party in general and for the election coming up is because every time Barack Obama is up there, you've got people who hate Donald Trump who think, wow, this is what normal feels like. This is what sanity feels like. This is what comfort and assurance and leadership feels like. And when people feel nostalgic for President Obama, they are going to automatically associate his vice president with him and think, okay, well, I want that. I want that feeling of normalcy. I want that feeling of steadiness, again, that I feel whenever I watch Barack Obama speak. And so I am going to vote for the guy who was his right-hand man for eight years so we can get back into that sense of normalcy. But the only reason why things feel normal when we're watching President Obama or the only reason that people feel nostalgic, yes, of course, people feel nostalgic who actually liked him and liked his policies, but the only uh, the only reason that some people feel any kind of sense of, of peace and steadiness while watching him isn't because his presidency was actually very uh, peaceful or created a prosperous, united, loving America. There is this mythology that surrounds President Obama's um, administration and his time as president, that that was a very um, peaceful time in our nation that we all kind of got along and that we all showed each other some kind of basic respect and we represented some kind of fundamental decency in our conversations and we weren't divided until President Trump came along. Well, that's just not true. Like you can look at dozens of studies that show what happened while Obama was president and correlation doesn't prove causation, but while Obama was president, the right and the left became more polarized probably than we've ever been. And we're going to talk about some of those studies after I point out how specifically Barack Obama did this in his speech, this thing of uh, dividing the country and splitting people up in categories without it making it seem like that's what he's doing. So in the name of unity, he breaks people up into their factions like race, like class, and he makes political points without it seeming political. And this is very persuasive. So again, this is a smart move by him politically to put himself out there. It's smart for the Democratic Party. It's not what past presidents have done, but this is a new hyper-political age that I personally believe his administration ushered in. So here's part of what he says and part of, and here's one example of how he does what I kind of just explained. Uh, this pandemic has shaken up the status quo and laid bare a lot of our country's deep-seated problems from massive economic inequality to ongoing racial disparities to a lack of basic health care for people who need it. So he's talking about the pandemic. He's talking about coronavirus. So let's repeat that. Coronavirus, he is saying, has uh, showed our, has shown our deep-seated problems, which are massive economic inequality to ongoing racial disparities, to a lack of basic health care for people who need it. So he makes these political, social, moral statements without giving us any evidence, without giving us any proof or any explanation, any clarity whatsoever on how the coronavirus has shown ongoing racial disparities. There may be other things in our country that you can say uh, prove that. There may be some statistics or some studies or some stories that you can point us to that show that the coronavirus has um, has uncovered racial disparities. Now, of course, it's true that unfortunately and tragically, coronavirus is disproportionately affecting minority communities. 
But his implication here is that that's because of racism. That is because of some kind of systemic injustice. There are all kinds of characteristics that we can point to that are more prevalent in minority communities that might make them tragically, again, more vulnerable to the coronavirus. But here, without actually overtly making the argument, Obama is making the argument that coronavirus uncovers racial disparities like or because of systemic injustice and systemic racism. This is what Obama does so effectively. He makes the argument without actually having to make the argument. And it sounds so good and we accept it as fact that it becomes part of our ideology quickly. He also talks about massive economic inequality. Again, not pointing to any fact, not pointing to any statistic, but simply saying it shows the inequality that is uh, that had already existed in this country. He is saying that coronavirus just peel back the layers and uh, and has demonstrated just how unjust and unequal and all the inequities uh, that this country is is facing without actually having to explain how any of that is true. He makes political statements without them sounding political and without adding any substance to the argument. He goes on to say that our democracy will only work when we think not just about ourselves, but about each other. And again, I agree with that, that we should be thinking about each other. And this is what he does. He weaves things that sound true with statements that are political that we just accept if we're not thinking critically and asking questions about what does he mean by these statements and how can he prove them to be true. He says, but if you listen to the truth that's inside yourself, even when it's hard, even when it's convenient, people will notice they'll gravitate towards you and you'll be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. That sounds great until, again, you take a step back and you say, hang on a second, what did you just say? But if you listen to the truth that's inside yourself, even when it's hard. So this is this new age, postmodern, subjectivist, relativist mentality that we've talked about so much on this podcast that it's no wonder that it's become so popular, particularly over the past 10 years, uh, because this is such a prevalent idea on the left in particular, although it does exist on the right, but especially on the left, this idea of my truth and your truth, my morality and your morality, this line that he says, but if you listen to the truth that's inside yourself, even when it's hard, even when it's convenient, people will notice. But of course, we don't know what that means. If I said uh, that my truth is being an evangelical conservative that's supposed to vote for Donald Trump, I'm sure Barack Obama would have a problem with that. I'm sure that he would disagree with my truth and he would probably say that it's not my truth. Of course, because there's not a my truth and your truth. There is one objective truth. So it does, it sound, as good as it sounds, it does no one any good to say that you should follow your truth. But again, this is how Obama makes statements that are um, ideological in nature without making them sound ideological. He talks about building a community. No one does things by themselves. That is true. Right now, when people are scared, it's easy to be cynical and say, just let me look out for myself or my family or people who look or think or pray like me. Again, that sounds true. That sounds true and sounds good that we shouldn't be selfish. We shouldn't live in isolation. We shouldn't just uh, care about what's right in front of us. We should look to the needs of others. That's, of course, biblical, that we shouldn't just look to our own interests, but also the uh, interests of others. 
but he says he projects this identity onto America that we shouldn't just be caring about the people who look or think or pray like me. Like this is a prevalent problem that we have that most people in America, he is assuming are bigots and struggle with caring about people who don't look or think the same way that we do. And I don't think that that's true for the majority of Americans. But this is the picture that Obama um, seemingly innocuously has painted of America as long as he's been in politics. That everyone in America, or that a lot of people in America, a lot more people than is probably true, a lot of people struggle with bigotry and struggle with caring about anyone outside of their circle. And I just don't think that's an accurate portrayal of America. But Barack Obama wants you to believe that that is a pervasive problem. He says, but if we're going to get through these difficult times, if we're going to create a world where everybody has the opportunity to find a job and afford college, again, those are loaded political statements, I'm sure. And if we are going to save the environment, he says, and defeat future pandemics, then we're going to have to do it together. So be alive to one another's struggles, stand up for one another's rights, leave behind all the old ways of thinking that divide us, sexism, racial prejudice, status, greed, and set the world on a different path. Again, by pointing out these points of division, which I agree that sexism, that racial prejudice, that uh, greed, that those are all sins and that we should all be more charitable and we should all be more truly loving and truly kind and truly gracious, I believe that too. He prescribes or he um, points to a problem in America that he believes is much more pervasive and is much bigger than it probably actually is. Do racists exist? Do sexists exist? Of course, do elitists exist? Yes, of course they do. But right here, he is portraying a kind of class warfare, a kind of race warfare that we need to continue waging without actually saying what is the unifying factor under which um, America can move forward. Like, what is the thing that brings us all together? What does make America, uh, what does make Americans Americans? He doesn't actually give a positive portrayal of who America is, who our identity is, what actually brings us together, the principles under which we operate that make us the United States. Again, he portrays um, or he conveys his political ideology without making it sound political, just making it sound moral and matter of fact without saying anything that actually backs up his points. And this, again, is what Obama does so well. And it is so compelling, I think, for most people who are, um, who just want to be comfortable again. Like they just want to feel like things are how they were before Trump took office. The chaos that uh, the media mostly has caused, they want to be out of that. They like living in a world where the media doesn't hold an administration accountable and just compliments them. And they can kind of live in this la-la land um, and pretend like Obama was the best president that ever existed, that he was the most unifying president that ever existed, and that his presidency was scandal free. And we know for a fact that that is not true. Um, The fact is, is that President Obama is really good at making you think that he is scandal free, really good at making you think that he just wants to bring people together. But that's not actually what happened under his presidency. So Meghan McCain made a comment the other day on The View and said, you know, the culture war was really started or at least got a lot worse under President Obama. 
And everyone on Twitter was like, oh my gosh, this isn't true. It's all Trump's fault. This is not true. But she's absolutely right. She's absolutely right. People who think that these culture wars, that we became divided under Trump, just weren't paying attention. Or they didn't want to think that we were divided under President Obama. Or they didn't notice because they felt like their side was winning and their guy was in charge. So they thought maybe the culture wars were non-existent or they were so small, um, but that's not true. We became very divided under President Obama, and you could say that it's been exacerbated now under this presidency. You could say that it's gotten worse over the past few years. You could say that Trump hasn't helped things, but it did not start under President Trump. So. This study that I've shown or I've talked about several times is a Pew Research study from 2017 called Polarization in Politics. You can see the different graphs and I'll put the link in the, um, in the description for this episode. So you can see the different graphs and you can see where the country has, how the country has identified politically since 1994, I think is the earliest that it goes. But if you look from 2011 to 2017, the median Democrat, moved way to the left during that time. Between 2011, 2017, the median Democrat moved way over to the left and the median Republican moved to the right only very slightly. So under Barack Obama's president, the left moved to the left. So the median Democrat moved way to the left and the Republicans stayed just about the same. On every issue, if you look at the breakdown of this study, the right has moved slightly to the right or has remained um, unchanged on an issue and uh, or has even moved a little bit to the left, but the left has moved far over to the left, mostly over the past 10 years, mostly while Barack Obama was president. We have more people on the far left than we've ever had before, far more people on the far left than we have on the far right, according to the study at least. And you can hear this, of course, in their rhetoric that changed while Barack, was pre while Barack Obama was president and the causes that they stand for that were either much more moderate or, non or they were non-existent 10 years ago. So you've got abortion on demand now, it used to be safe, legal, and rare. You've got decriminalizing uh, illegal immigration or decriminalizing border crossings. That wasn't true 10 years ago. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer all, uh, all talked about uh, the problems with the legal immigration, the sexual revolution that challenges the definition of something as basic and biological of, uh, as genders. That has existed for all of human history and yet just in the past few years that's been challenged. The moral and sexual political revolution of the left um, got a lot quicker. It was expedited under Barack Obama's presidency. And maybe he didn't do that on purpose, but certainly his administration and his leadership allowed for that. And one of the things that we disagree on the most, I think one of the things that has divided the country the most, unfortunately, is the conversation surrounding race. And that changed very dramatically while Barack Obama was president. So this is from that same Pew Research study. They asked, so this is how they phrased it. And this is from Pew Research. It says, growing share sites discrimination as a barrier to blacks getting ahead. So if you look at 2009, 2010, um, only 18% of the country said that they felt that racial discrimination is the main reason why black people can't get ahead these days. So again, this is from Pew Research, 2009, 2010, only 18% believed that. But by 2017, 41% believed that. 
So 40, from 18% to 41% believe that our ideas on racial discrimination changed a lot while President Obama was president. Now, is that because racism actually increased during that time? Or was it just because the conversation changed? It's probably because the conversation changed. And I'm not saying that the conversation changed all for the worse, but it did change. And then we look at the difference in perspective on race and racial discrimination, at least against black people, and how different it is if you're a Democrat versus if you're a Republican. So 2009, 2010, only 28% of Democrats in 2009, 2010 believed that discrimination was the reason why African-Americans cannot get ahead. By 2017, that had shot up to 64%, so much higher than it had ever been since 1994 at least. In 1994, only 39% of Democrats believed that. But in 2017, 64% of Democrats believe that discrimination was the main reason rather than personal choices was the main reason why black people can't get ahead. Now, again, is that because racism has gotten a lot worse since 1994? Probably not, but our perspective has changed. Whereas for Republicans in 2009, 2010, only 9% believed that discrimination was the main reason. And in 2017, that's only up uh, to 14%. So 64% among Democrats, 14% among Republicans in 2017. So that gap moved a lot while Barack, it, it opened a lot while Barack Obama was president. And that is mostly because Democrats changed their perspective. And so whatever you think about that, whether you think that that's a good thing, it's just a product of us talking about it more and having much needed conversations and people raising awareness about racism, whatever you think about that growing gap, the fact of the matter is that gap uh, happened mostly under President Obama. It didn't happen under President Trump. So those gaps existed. President Trump came in and things have just gotten worse. And it's not all President Trump's fault in the same way that it wasn't all President Obama's fault. The media uh, can take a lot of the blame for this. Social media can take a lot of the blame for this. All of us who are in this sphere can take blame for this. But the fact of the matter is these divisions, these culture wars, um, they got a lot worse if they didn't originate under Barack Obama's tenure. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. Again, that doesn't mean that it's all his fault, but certainly he is a master at presenting these culture wars in a way that is much more, um, is much more subtle than President Trump. President Trump gets up in a rally and he says, this is the culture war. And this is what I think about the culture war. Um, you know, Democrats want abortion on demand. And they think that you should kill a baby after the baby is born, which is what Gov Governor Northam said. But he'll just come out and say that. He'll just come out and say exactly what he thinks about the Democrats. And he's not demure about it at all. Whereas President Obama will do the same thing, but he will do it in a much more subtle and I would say deceptive way. So he will say something like, well, the people in charge, the people in charge don't know, you know, what they're doing. And well, we need to we need to make sure that we're coming together and looking at these racial disparities that are shown by coronavirus. So a lot less political sounding, a lot more subtle, and probably a lot more compelling for a lot of people, whereas President Trump is just going to come out and say it. But anyone who thinks that um, President Obama is somehow less political and is somehow less divisive, they're just not looking at what he is saying underneath the veneer 
of assurance and peace and unity, if that makes sense. Um, so I just want to touch on that because a lot of you guys asked me to talk about it. Uh, I now want to get into Ravi Zacharias and what he represents and just kind of pay tribute to him. Uh, but before I get into that, let me tell you guys about a sponsor that I've told you about before, and that is Classic Learning Test. The SAT and ACT are often thought of as these inconvenient tasks that students have to give up a Saturday for a few times their junior and senior year. However, the SAT and the ACT are the two most powerful forces that are driving curriculum in the United States today. So high stakes tests like the SAT and the ACT drive instruction and curriculum. And there's also no question that the College Board who owns the SAT is a far left organization just last year. The College Board had students reading Bernie Sanders' op-eds on the SAT. Uh, the good news is, is that there is a company that is taking on the SAT and the ACT, and that is the Classic Learning Test, or CLT, that's been around for just over four years, has already been adopted by more than 200 colleges, and nearly every college will consider CLT scores at least as a supplemental component of an application. The CLT is shorter than the SAT and the ACT, and students can now take it in the comfort of their own home through remote proctoring technology. The final CLT of the year, the June 20th CLT is on its way very quickly. With SAT and ACT canceled, the demand for the CLT has been so high that seats for the June 20th CLT are limited. Currently, there are fewer than 8,000 tests remaining. So if you are a high schooler, if you've got a kid who's a high schooler, if you know someone who is a high schooler and you want to take the CLT, don't miss out. Go to cltexam.com. That is cltexam.com and register now. Okay, let's talk about Ravi Zacharias just a little bit. So he was a Christian apologist and he dedicated his Christian life to helping Christians critically think about their own faith and critically read the Bible and to be able to defend their faith uh, against apologists for other faiths. And really there was no one like him um, that did exactly what he did in the way he did it. He was such a good thinker, such a good philosopher, so creative in the ways that he biblically defended the faith and his ministry will live on. And I've just been praying that God would continue to be glorified through his ministry, that even in his death, that uh, God would bring others to himself and share his gospel and soften hearts. And we know that he can do that because he brings all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know that Ravi Zacharias loved him and was called according to his purpose. And um, God's glory is our good. So I pray that God would be glorified through this. And we know that Ravi Zacharias is now um, in heaven celebrating with the Lord exactly where he has wanted to be from the second that he uh, came to faith by grace through faith. And that is what we are going to talk about by grace through faith, because I posted a quote by Ravi Zacharias that said that I do want to clarify actually, but 
He said repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that's going to save you. No amount of religious activity is going to get you there. Only true faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to clarify that by saying, um, and I don't think he meant this, but just in case anyone misinterpreted that I don't believe that your uh, willpower to repent saves you. That can't save you. The power that you have to repent when you come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, even that power is given to you by God. I don't believe, according to what scripture says, that we can take any credit for salvation at all, except for the sin that makes it necessary as the saying goes. So I just wanted to clarify that, that repentance is a product of faith. It is not a prerequisite of faith. And that also goes, there is a debate that broke out on my Instagram post, and I just want to speak to that. That also goes for good works. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there. There are some Protestants who believe this. There are a lot of Catholics who believe this, that it it is faith plus works equals salvation. So if you have a faith in Christ, plus you do good works, that's what gets you into heaven. If you don't have good works, if you don't do enough good works, if you don't do the right things, then you won't get into heaven. And I want to go to the word of God to make sure that we are clear on this because missing that misses the gospel. Like you miss freedom and you miss joy if you think that the burden is on you to prove your salvation or to earn your salvation through works. Now, The verse that people who believe that it is faith plus works equals salvation, the verse that people typically go to is James 2.26. Most of you are probably familiar. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, a lot of people who cite this verse think that people like me are just ignoring that verse, that we just are uncomfortable with the book of James and we're very uncomfortable with James 2.26 and we just forget like it's, we just forget that it's there and we just act like it's not there. But that's not true. Me, as a reformed Protestant who believes in by grace alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I read James 2.26 and I say, amen, absolutely. I believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Therefore, it is without error. Therefore, it does not contradict itself. And so when I read James 2.26, if I have a question about that, if I'm thinking, okay, well, does that mean that I earn my salvation? Does that mean that I have to do good works in order to be saved? I have to, just like I do with every verse that I'm reading, look at the entirety of scripture. As I've said many times on this podcast, if you ever get to a verse or a passage that seems to contradict another verse or another passage, you don't throw one out in favor of the other. You look at both verses and you look to reconcile the truth that is in both passages with more scripture, like with more truth. You don't say, well, that one doesn't make sense to me or that one doesn't fit into my preconceived notions of who I want God to be or what my denomination has said or what my pastor has said. So I'm just going to throw out this, this, I'm going to throw this out. No, that's not what you do. You say, okay, this is the word of God. This is inerrant. Truth doesn't contradict itself. I am going to work, go deeper into scripture to figure out what this means so I can draw truth from it. I'm going to ask uh, God for wisdom to give me uh, clarity and understanding on this. I'm going to go to biblically solid resources and help me understand this. Too many of us, when we get confused by scripture, we step away from scripture and we go into our own minds and we try to make our own um, our 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 own uh, ideas of how we reconcile what seems to be contradictory, and too often we end up with a faulty theology instead of 
uh, going out of scripture and into our own minds. We need to go out of our own confusion and into scripture and seek wisdom. So when I look at James 2.26 and I read faith apart from works is dead and the rest of the chapter talks about being justified by works and how Abraham was justified by works. And that's confusing because other parts of the Bible say that Abraham was justified by faith. So what is it? I have to look at all of scripture. Well, in order for me to make sense of this statement that faith apart from works is dead, I go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, let me just repeat this, because if any of you out there, and I know there are some of you who listen to my podcast who believe that it is faith plus works equals salvation, let let me just read to you this passage again and how apparently important the Holy Spirit thinks it is for you and I to understand that we are saved by grace through faith, that it's not our own doing. Just listen to how many times that idea is reiterated over and over again in these three verses. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Okay, so that's one time. By grace, you have been saved through faith. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. So by nature, you cannot earn grace. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And what? And this is not your own doing. Okay, done. This is not your own doing. Really simple. Look at it in the original Greek. You're not going to find anything different. And this is not your own doing. So we already got it just in two sentences, uh, one and a half sentences. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Let's keep going. It is the gift of God. Okay. So again, we are, uh, it's reiterated the same idea. It is the gift of God. What is a gift? A gift is something that you didn't earn. If you mow a lawn and you earn $10, the $10 that you are given is not a gift. It is, uh, your, it's your, it's the money that you earned. It is, um, you could say a reward of some kind, but you actually earned it. It is not a gift. A gift is something that you did not earn. So already in two sentences and a little more than one and a half sentences, we hear for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Then we hear it is not your own doing. And then we hear it is a gift of God. And just to drive it home even more, not a result of works, not a result of works. So by grace, I've been saved through faith. It's not my own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Like it's very important apparently to God uh, that we understand this concept because he says it in several ways in just two sentences, just to make sure that our thick skulls understand for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. I don't know how it gets more clear than that. And then we go to the verse that reconciles these two ideas. So it's so crystal clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that, okay, it's by grace. That means we didn't earn it. It's a gift. It's not by works so that I cannot boast. And then how we reconcile that perfectly crystal clear idea with James 2 that says that faith without works is dead and that works are very important. This is what reconciles these two seemingly contradictory ideas. It's Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for 
good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what does that verse tell us? That verse tells us that the good works that we do are a product of the saving faith that was given to us by grace and not a prerequisite of our saving faith or not a prerequisite of our salvation. We're not creating a resume with our good works. These are good works that we can't even take credit for at all because this verse says that God prepared those works beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is the fruit of our salvation that was given to us by grace through faith. This is not a salvation that we earn. If we could earn salvation, if we had to earn salvation, we would all be out of luck, completely out of luck. What does the Bible say about us? The Bible says that our heart is corrupt. Like our heart is wayward. Our heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible said our righteousness is as filthy rags to the Lord. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Jesus earned your favor earned God's favor on your behalf. That is the freedom. That is the freedom of the gospel. That is the beauty of the gospel. And for you to believe that you have to earn your salvation is to do what Romans 8 tells us not to do, to fall back into the spirit of fear, to fall back into the spirit of, of slavery. But instead, we are free in Christ to call out to God, Abba, Father, because he saved us through no merit of our own, but because of his goodness and his grace. Remember, a really good way to figure out if you've got the right theology is to ask yourself, does my belief give more glory to God or glory to me? The belief that gives glory to God is that you were saved due to nothing good that you've done that you are saved by grace through faith. The belief that gives more glory to you is the belief that you did something to earn it, that you're kind of deserving of it. That is, uh, that is a desire to give glory to yourself that my friend, you do not deserve. Let's look at some more passages of scripture that support the idea that we are saved by grace and that works have nothing to do in earning your salvation. They're a product of your salvation. They don't earn your salvation. Let's read Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Did it say by his, by our works? No, it says by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. And let's read Titus 3, 4 through 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Like, it's so important to God, apparently, that we get this. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Like, I don't want you to miss that. If you miss out on that, you miss the gospel. You miss Christianity. 
But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appear, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are already a Reformed Christian, you're like, Ali, why are you repeating this so much? Well, you can go to my Instagram post and you can see the debate that was breaking out. And you can understand that I've got a lot of people that listen to me that buy into this false, this false, um, leading to hell, a false gospel that says that you have to or you have the ability to earn your salvation. Glory be to God that we cannot, that we will not ever earn our salvation. You can try and try and try. All you are doing is exhausting yourself. That is a worldly burden that you are bearing right now. If you are trying to be good enough, if you're trying to say enough prayers or the right prayers or have all the right, do, do enough sacraments and go to confession enough, you are wasting your time and you're wasting your energy. God has already declared victory for you if you are in Christ. You don't have to try to keep earning it. In fact, you can't. You can't. That is the gospel that Ravi Zacharias knew. That is the gospel that his ministry represents. And I'm so thankful for his legacy and the legacy of all Christians who have been faithful to God and faithful ministers of the gospel. And may we be faithful as well. May God grant us strength and grant us wisdom to stick to the truth and not be afraid to share it and not be afraid to live it. Um, Okay, I don't have time to talk about the MLMs today. I know a lot of you wanted me to talk about it. I'll talk about it on Friday. Okay, I promise you that. I will be back here then. Have a great rest of your week. 